0: Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? You all look fairly perky after losing an hour of sleep. Um, I don't know about you. I, we went around the whole house setting the clocks back about five o'clock to make sure we got it all done, and um, so I'm feeling pretty good this morning, so hopefully you are as well.'m Glad you made it. Uh, as many of you know, we're in the middle of a series right now called "Wild Goose." It's a, intended to be a theological overview of the Holy Spirit, and if you're a guest with us today, you're probably wondering what's up with that title? Well, here's the deal. Uh, There are a number of metaphors in scripture, Old and New Testament, used to depict the Holy Spirit, the most famous being that of a dove. But apparently, ancient Celtic Christians weren't all that familiar with doves, and so they adopted their own metaphor, referring to the spirit as anged gloss, or the wild goose. And I chose to uh, go with that metaphor with the series because, for me at least, I think it uniquely portrays the power, the freedom, the grace, and the majestic nature of God's Spirit. And so, uh, as we continue our study this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, if you have them with you. Matthew 12, if you need a Bible to use, you should find one available around you uh, in one of the chair, uh, in cha- one of the chair bottoms. Um, Matthew 12, and I want to consider with you this morning something Jesus said in reference to the Holy Spirit that has, um, well, it's confused many and it's haunted some. And in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 30, Jesus says this. Whoever, does not, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, one of the things that I've learned over the years studying the teaching of Jesus is that uh, every now and then he says something that's either really hard to understand or really hard to accept or in some cases both. And this is one of those both situations. And when you come to a text like this, a passage like this, you just you know you just can't read it and run. I mean you you, you it's a kind of imperative that you take your time and sort of peel back the layers of what's being said because Jesus is teaching, has a depth of truth and wisdom that requires careful consideration. And in this particular text, we have Jesus describing uh, what's become known down through the centuries as the unpardonable sin. And I'm guessing many of you have heard of that before. And I can tell you from personal experience, these words have terrified a lot of people, with some of them actually ending up in my office, afraid and convinced, even, that they've committed it. But uh, what's interesting is that even without <clears throat> reading the statement or hearing the words of Jesus, most people naturally wonder about it. They, they raise the question, you know, is it possible uh, to do something so profoundly evil that it places a person outside of God's ability to forgive them, you know, beyond the reach even of, of divine grace? And if so, what on earth is it? And I'm guessing that the majority of us in the room this morning would like to know. Right? I mean, I think we'd all appreciate some clarity on this unforgivable sin deal. And as a result, the temptation for us is to, you know, read through the passage really quickly in order to get to a conclusion. But I want to uh, avoid doing that. And instead, I I want us to slow down and actually consider uh, some additional and what I would say significant truths that Jesus reveals here. You say, well, like what? Well, like, for example, the reality of forgiveness, Maybe it's just me, but I, I, think, I think the truth about forgiveness that Jesus affirms here is as important as anything else in the text. You know, a lot of people read these verses and they get all unnerved by them, which I understand. But some of that unnerving comes from a failure to, failure to recognize everything that Jesus is saying. I mean, you think about it, he, he's, making, uh, he's making it clear here that God is amazingly gracious and willing to forgive sin. To what extent? Well, Jesus says, every, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Even, even anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You know, those are, those are incredible statements. Uh, statements that should uh, offer some degree of comfort to us, and yet we overlook them oftentimes. We just kind of race by them to get to what's next. And so let me put on the brakes for a second and, and point out to you how the, the title, Son of Man, was a title of of power and royalty. Uh, In the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel applied this title to the divine being that he saw in a vision where what he describes as the Son of Man was leading the armies of heaven in the clouds and God the Father, the Ancient of Days, uh, brought him into his presence and gave him all authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion was everlasting, his kingdom one that will never ever be destroyed. I.e., the Son of Man was, was the title for the Messiah, the divine coming king. And it's interesting, you probably realize this, but in the ancient Near East, kings were treated with great honor and, and respect and dignity. And that dignity was pr- uh, protected. Uh, for example, you were not allowed to just you know just walk into the presence of a king whenever you wanted to. You were, were only allowed to, to, to go into the presence of a king if you were called or you were invited to do otherwise was a capital offense. You could be put to death unless the king pardoned you. Not only that, you were never uh, allowed to look the king in the eyes and and you you weren't to speak unless you were spoken to, and most definitely, most definitely, you could never, ever speak against the king. But Jesus, who applies this divine, royal title, son of man to himself, was unique. Not only was he approachable, but uh, he said, you know, you can speak to me, and you can even speak against me, and slander me even, and I will forgive you. And, you know, this is just another one of those uh, outrageous claims that Jesus made about himself. I mean, he's claiming to be the divine messianic king who was eternal, who would judge heaven and earth, but who would forgive sin. A king who welcomed everyone into his presence and spoke to anyone. A king who held little children, who touched the lepers, who hung out with drunks, listened to prostitutes, helped pagan soldiers, cared for the poor and the marginalized. I mean, he was a king who never copped the attitude, hey, how dare you come and talk to me? I'm offended. Never. He was a different kind of king. And he proved it when people not only spoke against him, slandered him, but mocked him, beat him, spit on him, stripped him, nailed him to a cross, speared him, and then killed him. And what did he say? Forgive them. Forgive them. Here's my point let's not miss what Jesus is teaching about forgiveness namely that it's available out of love god graciously offers it to everyone and anyone but but here's the dilemma of forgiveness apparently some people can place themselves outside of god's ability to forgive you say well how is that possible god is god right i mean he can do anything no he can't if you think that he can you're mistaken According to Scripture, there are a number of things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot get tired. God cannot break a promise. God cannot stop loving. It's who He is, as the Apostle John put it. God is love, it's part of His nature. It's who He is. And yet, God cannot be anything less than righteous and just. Or, as John puts that, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He is loving and he is just. Uh, Heinrich Ein was a, a very influential, well-known German poet of the late 19th century. And um, he was kind of a crazy guy. Everybody knew it. I mean, he had this public lifestyle that was just out of control and just an immoral way of life. And he was famous for it. And on his deathbed, he was asked the question, Aren't you afraid to meet God? And he he made this famous statement. He said, no, God will forgive me. That's his job. In other words, I was a guy who believed in a God of love, but not in a God who is holy and just. And there's a problem with that. If you believe that God is only love, then you're never truly going to grasp the full extent of that love because you're never going to understand God's grace and God's forgiveness, which demands a recognition of his his holiness and justice. You you follow me on that? In other words, unless you understand that God is both loving and just, Jesus' death on the cross isn't gonna make any sense to you. Because if God is merely love, then there's no need for sacrifice, there's no need for atonement. And, you know, there are a lot of people in our culture today who kind of view God this way. He's just, he's just love. He just is love. No standards, no absolutes. Uh, he's just kind of this cosmic buddy who assists us on the path to self-actualization. And if that's your opinion, that's fine. Just understand that's not biblical Christianity. It's not what Jesus taught. In fact, the reality of God's love and justice lies beneath what, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 12. When we look at verse 30, he says, whoever's not, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In essence, Jesus is, is saying that with him, there's no neutrality. I mean, you either believe in him or you don't. You're either for him or you're against him. And in a way, he's warning, against, warning people against pitting his love against his divine justice. He's saying, look, it's true I'm loving, but that's not all there is to me. And it's not, like, it's not like it doesn't matter what you do and how you act and what you say, you're going to be automatically, unconditionally forgiven. No, that's, that's not how the universe works. I mean, think, think of it this way. Let's Say you go downtown Chicago for a walk or a bike ride and you, you're, in, you're in a part of the street and, and suddenly you get jumped, you get robbed, you get just beat up, le- really brutally beat up and, and left for dead on the street. You don't die, though. You're rescued... Um, you're taken to the hospital, uh, you're recovering, and the police show up, and they say, hey, you know, we, we caught the individual who did this evil thing to you. And you say to them, you know, that's good, but let's not, let's not prosecute. I forgive them. You know what the authorities are going to say? The authorities are going to say, you know, that's nice of you, but look, there's something greater at stake here. There's the matter of justice. I mean, we can't just have a, we can't have a society without justice. You know, we have to deal with, with, with evil. And I think we would all agree with that. Well, God says the same is true cosmically. You know, there's something inherent, not only in the nature of God, but inherent to the moral structure of the universe he himself created, whereby sin and evil cannot simply be written off or ignored. And therein, and therein lies the dilemma God lovingly wants to forgive, but justice, justice has, has to be served. It must be served. I once heard it put this way. Forgiveness is a problem even for God. And it's the greatest problem in the universe. How do you feel about that statement? What do you, what do you think about that? Some people will disagree with it. And, and, and I think they disagree with it because for some people, forgiveness is an easy thing. At least they, that's how they view it. I don't think that that's true though. Uh, Miroslav Volf is a theology professor at Yale University. He uh, was born in Croatia and uh, as a young child, he and his family were persecuted and growing up, he saw some uh, atrocities committed against people there. And later in life as as a Christian, as a theologian, he really wrestled with this whole idea of forgiveness, you know, and how do you forgive those who commit atrocities against other people, against us even? Uh, It was a personal thing for him, and he wrote in a book entitled A Spacious Heart, he said, you know, forgiveness always comes as a surprise. Forgiveness is an outrage. When it happens, there's always a strange, almost irrational otherness at its very heart. Even when we're aware that given the nature of our world, it's wiser to forgive than to withhold forgiveness. Forgiveness. Volt is saying, you know, look, even when we know it is right, it is good, it is, he- it is healthy to forgive, man, it's hard to do it. To really do it, it's hard. And when it happens, you know, whether we're on the giving or the receiving end of forgiveness, it, we're kind of surprised by it, given what we know about human nature. There's something otherworldly other about it, bordering on the miraculous. And if you've ever been betrayed, you've ever been w- wounded, ever been violated, ever been slandered by someone, you know. True forgiveness is not easy. It's not. And if you think it is, then the life, the teaching, and the, and the death of Jesus will have no real impact on you because for you it's going to be no big deal. And yet Jesus demonstrated just how high the cost of forgiveness is. How hard it is. But here's what he said about it. He said forgiveness is possible. How? It's through the power of Repentance. What do I mean by that? Well, look in verse 31. Jesus said, and so I tell you this, every kind of sin, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy, and that word just means to speak evil of, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, on the surface, that seems contradictory, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense for Jesus to say, almost, almost? Almost every kind of sin can be forgiven except this one, this kind over here. But he doesn't say that. He makes two separate statements. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Spirit cannot be forgiven. Why does he do that? Most scholars agree that one of the keys to understanding this is to read the first statement as an external reality and the second as an internal reality. And doing that harmonizes what Jesus says here with everything else he taught and what scripture teaches all throughout, that there is power in repentance. And think about it, the, f- the first statement, right? Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, every kind. Here's my, here's my personal Ray K. translation. There is no particular word or deed that is automatically unforgivable and places you and I outside God's ability to save us, to rescue us. Otherwise, what did God mean when he said to his people uh, in Isaiah? He said, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're, they're like crimson, they will be like wool. What was God saying? He was saying, look, it doesn't matter how deep the stain is. I can get it out. All your sins can be white as snow. All your sins can be forgiven. And that was good news for a guy like Moses, who was a murderer, but forgiven, became a leader of Israel. And that was good news for a guy like David who was an adulterer and a murderer and he was forgiven because he was a king of Israel. It was good news for Paul who was a persecutor of the church, a murderer who was forgiven and made an apostle. And what did all those guys have in common? They humbly confessed and repented of their sin before God. Listen, Jesus says every kind, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Nothing you do or say can put you beyond God's ability to rescue you if you humble yourself and just receive God's grace. But, and here's the second statement, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. You see, where the first statement is about words and deeds, the second is ultimately about what's going on on the inside. About one's heart about taking a position of arrogance that says, you know what, I'm not going to confess and repent to anything. Even if, even, if when, or even if and when I see God at work or I, I sense God's spirit calling me to do so, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to resist. I will resist him. I will resist God. One of the things we haven't, I haven't pointed out to you yet is the context of These statements and when you're looking at scripture, it's context 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 is critical And What's the context here? Well, we're told that Jesus was going around offering to forgive sins According to Matthew. He just miraculously healed a whole bunch of people including a guy who was blind mute and demonically possessed IE by the power of the spirit working in and through him the message of Jesus's gospel of grace was being was being demonstrated and Miraculously validated. This was God at work Yet the Pharisees, the religious experts who heard all of this and witnessed all of this, refused to admit anything. They refused to admit they were wrong about anything, including Jesus, and they had absolutely no intention of acknowledging him as Messiah or Savior, and instead arrogantly responded and said, no, this is not God at work. This fellow Jesus is himself demonically possessed. His power is, and of God, it's from Satan. In other words, the Pharisees just out and out rejected the power and work of God's Spirit and therefore rejected the power and work of the Son. And it was to them, directly to them, Jesus makes these statements. It's like he said, man, you guys are hopeless when you hear of God's grace and you see the power of the Spirit in action bringing healing and forgiveness and salvation into the lives of just lost and broken people and you call it the work of Satan, there's no possibility for you to share in that salvation. Any and all sin can be forgiven but if you if you arrogantly resist God's offer of it then you've placed yourself beyond reach, beyond hope and there's no possibility of forgiveness. again, Here's my Reiki summary. God is loving and just, and He longs to forgive. And He will do so if we humbly admit our sin and place our faith in Jesus, who came to live the perfect life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. He was punished in our place. Through His sacrifice, justice, cosmic justice, has been graciously served. And so, with Him, any and all sin can and will be forgiven. Without him, no sin will be forgiven. Understand, the unpardonable sin is not not a reference to some solitary act or word as if there's one thing a person can do or say that condemns them forever. No, 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 no. It's an ongoing attitude of arrogant denial, an ultimate rejection of God's work of grace, bringing through Jesus forgiveness and salvation to our world, to you and to me. And so Jesus said, you know, either you're with me or you're against me. Now, maybe, maybe you're saying, look, I, I, don't, I don't believe any of this. And if that's the case, okay, um, I can respect that, but here's the deal. Jesus had told his followers that the Holy Spirit would come and he would convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. He said he will guide you into all truth. And so I would encourage you to invite God's Spirit to reveal to you what is true. You say, well, I don't really need any help. You know, I can make an objective decision on my own about what's true, thank you very much. No, you can't. You can't. Thomas Nagel is a very well-known and brilliant atheist philosopher at New York University. And in his book entitled The Last Word, he writes about his fear of religion, which is ultimately about his fear of God. And he says this some interesting things. He says, you know, in speaking of the fear of religion, I don't mean to refer to the entirely reasonable hostility towards certain established religions and religious institutions in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, social policies, and political influence. I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. He says, and I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that, I, that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. And I, you know, I appreciate Nagel's honesty. He's saying, he's saying, when it comes to God, nobody is truly objective. Nobody, not even him. He admits it. He wanted something to be true, whether it was true or not. Look, if God is real, and Jesus is who he claims to be, the only way you're going to see that truth is by way of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God at work. I mean, are you you afraid of what you might find to be true? If not, then ask for help. And when you sense the Spirit revealing to you the truth, don't resist. Don't turn away. Embrace it. Accept it. Experience it. Because in the end, the unpardonable sin is to resist the Spirit and reject the Son and arrogantly refuse God's grace. Now, before we finish, there's one other thing that I think the text teaches that we should uh, talk a little bit about, and that is the danger of goodness. I mean, let's not overlook the fact that the only people Jesus ever warns about the unpardonable sin are who? The Pharisees the religious experts, the guys who saw themselves as good. And to a great extent, they were good. I mean, they were good, moral, you know, zealous, upstanding, law-keeping citizens who went to temple, who memorized scripture. Uh, They were leaders in the community, but they would not accept Jesus. Why? Because the Pharisees believed it was possible for them to live such good, moral lives, you know, follow enough religious ritual, obey enough of the rules, as to get, as to please God and get Him to reward them by sending the Messiah, who would then come, overthrow the Romans, establish His kingdom, save the good people, punish the bad people. And here Jesus shows up, claiming to be the Messiah, but He comes in love and humility and servant servanthood. And He says to them, "Look, the problem isn't the Romans per se. The problem." is in your own self-righteous hearts. And your rescue isn't dependent on your moral effort. It's about God's grace. And it's not that good people get into the kingdom and bad people don't. It's that humble people get in and the proud who leave themselves out. But the Pharisees couldn't deal with that, man. They couldn't handle that. It went against their religiosity. It was a completely different view of the kingdom. And so ironically, and sadly so, it was their own sense of moral goodness that kept them from the gospel, huh. their own religion. And yet, how often, how often that's the way it goes? I mean, let's, let's be realistic here. The news of God's grace is usually way more, way more appealing to, to lost, broken, irreligious people who recognize their own moral failures than it is to religious folks who tend to carry a rather high opinion of their own goodness. And that's the danger of moral goodness, religion. Understand, religion says, I'm going to try to live a good enough life to where you know, God is pleased, he's impressed, and he's going to reward me. The gospel of grace says you can't live a life that good, but you don't have to because Jesus did it for you. Religion creates people who, with a sense of superiority, are quick to look down and, and judge others. And the gospel creates people who are humble and quick to offer mercy and grace, allowing God to judge. Religion encourages people to recite their prayers every morning, evening and before meals. But the gospel encourages people to pray and simply talk to God, any anytime, any place, an intimate, ongoing conversation. Religion leads people to see themselves as not all that bad, and so they have, they have trouble forgiving others who are bad or they see as bad. The gospel leads people to extend forgiveness as readily as they themselves have received it from God. Religion creates people who give and serve out of guilt, fear, and obligation. The gospel creates people who give and serve out of sheer joy and gratitude. Religion wears people out. It burdens them with rules and rituals and all these regulations that they must keep and they just can't do it, and it's enslaving. The gospel strengthens and inspires people with a deep, abiding sense of true freedom. Freedom. You see the difference? It's a massive difference. In his book, Mere Christianity, a Christian author, thinker, former atheist C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, you know, often religious people are eaten up with pride. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of God, but are all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. Now, why am I compelled to talk about the danger of religion, the danger of moral goodness? Simple. Because it's, it was the downfall of the, the, the spiritual downfall of the Pharisees. You say, well, yeah, 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 okay, but that was then, this is now. You know, there are no Pharisees here. Well, I hope that's true. But I fear it's possible for the Christian church to be filled with Pharisees. Men and women who may affirm theoretically the idea of God's grace, but are still banking on their own own moral good works and, and efforts to get by. And man, oh man, I can't... I cannot think of anything more sad and tragic than for someone to be in the church and be a Pharisee at heart. But it's absolutely possible. And you ask, Ray, how can you say that? I, I didn't. Jesus did. I mean, if you think this verse in Matthew 12 is troubling, a few chapters earlier, Jesus said this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I did this, that, and the other thing. We prophesied in your name. We taught in your name. We drove out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. We fed the poor. We did this, that. We did a lot of great good things in your name. We're good people. And Jesus said, then I will tell them plainly, away from me, I never knew you. And the word that caught my attention here is the word many, many, Many will come to the threshold of heaven claiming the name of Christ, banking eternity on their own morality good and good works, and in the end will have missed the grace of God. That is some sobering stuff right there, yeah? And I realize that, and so I don't want to leave us on that note. Let me refer back to the first point that we talked about, the reality of forgiveness. That is the good news, Jesus assured us that every kind, you hear that, right? Every kind of sin and slander can and will be forgiven if we just humble ourselves and confess our need of forgiveness, our need of a Savior, accept Him by faith, and embrace the grace of God. Do that. Do that, and the Holy Spirit will come and free you from the fear of having done anything unpardonable or unforgivable. Let's pray. Our Father, I think we would all admit that we share a common fallback position in that we tend to think pretty highly of ourselves. It's not that we're, we're perfect, but we, we are good people. We do good things. And we tend to bank on our own goodness to impress you. And as we think about our own goodness, we judge others. And yet you, you were clear to teach us that it's not about our goodness, it's not about our moral achievements, it's not about our human efforts that gets us into the kingdom, but it's, it's because of your grace. If we would just humbly admit we're not that good, uh, that we fall far short of your goodness, of your perfection. And so Jesus came to live the life that we could never live. And he died the death we deserve to die. He paid the penalty for us. Judgment has been served. In him there is forgiveness. In him there is life. I pray that you would help us understand that today. I pray that as you, your spirit speaks to us and moves among us that no one would resist. That we would all embrace this message of grace in Jesus, and in so doing, experience true freedom. I ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. I want to thank you for joining us this morning, and um, you know, maybe maybe you're here, and this whole Christian thing's a new deal for you, or maybe there, you know, there were, there was a day in your life when you went to church, or. You kind of did the religious thing. You're not even sure why you're here. Maybe you came with a friend, whatever. You, you just found your way back here. And, and you say, you know, I tried the church thing, and it, it just really didn't do it for me. You know, I tried Christianity, but it didn't work. I don't, I, again, I'm not sure why I'm here. My, my, my suggestion is that you didn't really try it, that you tried religion. You tried the rules. You tried the regulations. You tried the rituals. You felt the guilt, the obligations. The, you know, and it was crushing it was crushing, you couldn't live up to it, you couldn't do it. You don't understand when Jesus said to people, he said, uh, th- those of you who are burdened, weary and burdened, come and I'll give you rest. Religion was crushing people. And it's crushing people today. And Jesus says, come, it, it's, it's not about the works, it's not about the effort, it's about grace. And when you get that message, the message of the gospel, the true message of the gospel, it is life changing. <laughs> It is freeing and um, and if 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 you've never come to that place where you 've acknowledged Jesus and embraced the grace of God, don't resist anymore do it, and when you do it, tell somebody, let somebody know that you 've done it or if you have questions, talk to somebody you know from Parkview. To ask them uh, uh, you know to, to share their their faith journey with you and their story, and they'll they'll do that, or you can talk to someone up front following uh, the service any of our our worship leaders or anything like that but Don't resist the work of God in your life. It's not about your works, it's about grace. I hope you guys get that. I also hope you come back next week. We're going to continue with the series. And uh, I don't know, have any of you ever read the book of Acts in the New Testament? It's a pretty long book, uh, an involved book. Next week, I'm going to handle all of it in one session. Uh, Yeah, I know, Uh, you may have your doubts. It's going to be impressive, trust me. So you come back, we're going to take care of that. We'll get that out of the way, okay? So come back next Sunday and we'll we'll have a good time learning together, so let me pray for you. And now, Lord, I pray that as, as, we, as your church leaves this building, and we want to thank you for this place where we can come and we can share our lives and we can sing and we can, uh, we can learn and grow together. But this, this learning and this growing isn't just for ourselves. It's for the world. There's a purpose why you leave us here, and that is to bring this good news of grace to those who are crushed by guilt and religion. It is the message of Jesus. Forgiveness is possible. Life is guaranteed in him. And so as we leave today, Lord, may you fill us with that great sense of your grace and the freedom that comes with it and may we point people to you this week with our lives. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week.